So, you know, like I said, if the mess, the title of the message today from Nahum chapter 2, verse 11 to 13 is the shepherd versus the lamb. But, you know, like I said, be patient with me because if you might look at this three verses and say, Jimmy, where do you get shepherd in there? Um, you're just reading into it. I don't think so. I think as we look at this, especially with something called intertextuality of how one passage of scripture with certain key phrases um, is, is elsewhere. I actually think there is this theme um, that it is referencing even more, especially in connecting with other minor prophet, that there's this theme of the shepherd of Christ himself versus the lion. Okay. So I titled again, the message is the shepherd versus the lion. And I think there's so much here, even in three verses, I think it's to, at least for me, it's worth even just a 45 or 50 minutes message. Okay. In light of this. So if you're following with me, um, just by way of context, because it's always remember important that we look at a Bible passage is one puzzle piece, but it connects with others that then we see the big picture of how it relates. Um, last time we were looking at verses one to 10, We'll grab the bigger chunk. We saw that there was a lot of really direct prophecies of saying these historical things militarily would happen. Okay, And we've even covered about how they, they actually became fulfilled. And even writers outside of history, whether they're uh, Greek writers, Roman writers, and Babylonian chronicles, which were the Babylonians were the actual one that God used to destroy Nineveh, um, the details were fulfilled exactly um, to the T. Okay, But then when we get to here... Um, we see in verses 11 and 13, it gets a little bit more symbolic, right? It gets a little bit more metaphorical with this use of the term of a lion, okay? With lion. I actually last week was trying to come, um, put everything in the line. Then I realized, man, there's so many things in line. I think it's worth for even next week, which is today, okay? So today's message, we're going to see uh, three points. Uh, we're going to look at in talking about in God describing uh, Nineveh as a... Uh, as a line or the empire the Syrian empire as a pride of line is that what it is a, a group of line is called pride right it's not called pack okay so when we look at this we're going to see that there's going to be three things we need to know okay so how many things we need to know uh, three things okay so if you guys are taking notes these are the three points for the night okay point number one we need to know the elimination of Assyria is astounding news I'm going to repeat this okay Point number, by the way, all these is going to be, we need to know, dot, dot, dot. So if you're taking notes, you can write, we need to know, dot, dot, dot. And then underneath it, indented, number one is, we need to know, the elimination of Assyria is astounding news. The elimination of Assyria is astounding news. This is based upon verse 11, okay? Verse 11, the elimination of Assyria is astounding news. Let me say this again, point number one, we need to know, the elimination of Assyria is astounding news. And then point number two, point number two, we didn't know the oppression of Assyria is fierce. We need to know the oppression of Assyria is fierce. We need to know the oppression of Assyria is fierce. This is based upon verse 12. Um, it's anchored on verse 12 is uh, point number two. Um, this explains why is it God's going to eliminate them, right? It's because their oppression of Assyria is fierce, Okay. And in point number three, we need to know the causation of a serious fall is the Lord. The causation of a serious fall is the Lord. The causation of a serious fall is the Lord. This is based upon verses 13. Okay. Let me repeat again um, all three points. And again, of course, each one we go over this, I'll, I'll repeat them. Number one is we need to know the elimination of Assyria is astounding news. Okay. Is based upon verse 11. Point number two, we need to know the oppression 
of Assyria is fierce. That's based upon verse 12. And point number three, we need to know the causation of Assyria's fall is the Lord. That's based upon verse 13. Okay. So like I said earlier, um, so I, I really do like Nahum. Part of it is um, Nahum, though it's a short book, it's very short. There's only three chapters. I think for such a small book, there's actually different kinds of um, literary forms or genre. Because you see that there's direct prophecies. There's going to be even next week we'll look at one of the other ways that prophet, like the writings of the prophets look very different. If you guys notice, like we went over Jonah, right? Jonah as prophecy was narrative. It almost looked the same like if you read Genesis. It's just straight story, plot line uh, and all of that, right? Um, but here we also see prophets in the Old Testament could be very diverse writing. Some of it could be very direct, clear of saying this is going to happen. A, B, C, D, E. And then you're like, okay, this is very literal and exactly what happened. That's what we saw last week, right? Then there's like themes of visitation of God's second coming with uh, Christ's second coming with God's coming down to judge that we saw that in the first chapter, right? And then today we're going to see it's more metaphorical, which we see a lot of that throughout the different parts of the prophecy, okay? Um, so I, I see Leanne, you just joined in. We're at, uh, we just started in Nahum chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. So I thought this is actually a good passage to look at because sometimes people could be like, how do we interpret this? All these discussion of hermeneutics, how to interpret. And I think Nahum is a good book because even though the short part is very short, using metaphorical language to describe Nineveh, right? Because you can think of Book of Revelation, Daniel describes as animals, and how do you understand all these things? I think this is a little bit window. Of, of that okay so in light of this um, this is now going to describe in in more metaphorical <coughs> language to say God's going to judge Nineveh okay but even with this we're going to still see there's historical details with that okay so let's look at point number one based on verse 11 we need to know the elimination of Assyria is astounding news okay look at verse 11 Verse 11 begins really with rhetorical question. I don't know how the, your version has it, um, whether it's one rhetorical question or whether it's two, okay? I, I, could th I think we could divide into two um, for our English grammar purposes. The first one is, where is the den of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions? And then the second set is what? Where is the lion, lioness, and lion's club, cub went? with nothing to disturb them, okay? This rhetorical question shows how shocking it is with the news that Assyria will one day no longer be an empire, okay? So in light of this, I think the first question, whenever we look at these things that's symbolic, I think the first question we must always ask is, what does the referent refers to? Okay. Um, ben W, I'm gonna mute you just because there's feedback, is that okay? Okay. Okay, cool. You got there before me. Okay, so um, and again, you know, we'll do the prayers for, for those that join in later. Okay, after. Um, but so the question for me was, whenever we see all these animals, we always ask the question, right? Whether in the Book of Daniel, wherever is, who is this referring to? Um, I actually think the lion seems to refer to the king of Assyria, because you guys remember, even when we look at earlier parts of Nahum, we saw that using that you, uh, like I know in English, um, you is is just one word, right? Um, when I say, hey, you, everyone could turn their head. But remember how we talked about how in different languages, um, there's you could identify the you more specifically. Like, uh, Nancy, help me out. In Spanish, is there a difference of female and male you? There, there, I think there is, right? Uh, I think in Chinese, there's a, they don't have a distinguish between male and female. But there's a difference between 
uh, singular and plural. But in Hebrew... It's like you say y'all. Yeah, yeah. If you use the New American Southern Bible instead of uh, New American Standard Bible, you probably have y'all, right? For all those that's in the South with, uh, with Zeus and James and, and now you, Ben. Okay? Uh, shout out to all you guys. Okay, but going back on with this. So we saw all that. And then when we clear clear it up, then it becomes very clear much more who's who, right? And we saw the uh, Assyrian king mentioned earlier. I actually think the line in verses 11 um, is actually referencing to the Assyrian uh, king. Now, I separate that from the lioness and also the different terms, a variety of terms used to describe like younger baby or juvenile or not fully mature lions, okay? The reason why I say this um, is because um, when it talks about lion, lioness and lion's club and younger lion, um, the lion, of course, leads the pack or leads not the pack, uh, what do you call it in English word, uh, the pride, right? The group of lions, okay? Um, and I actually think another reason why God uses this is because I actually think God is almost like um, using Assyrians way of the, the way they see themselves and he's turning in on them like if the way it, maybe another analogy would be like it's almost like a rapper he's battling them and he's using their own lines their own bragging thing and he's turning around on them and making fun of them right if it was almost like you know like you know if the guy's gonna say hey i'm a king of rap and you just say hey, yeah you're a king the only king i know is what is you're the beef of burger king that's the only time you know something like that is equivalent of that you get what i'm trying to say here so he uses because Assyria loves to describe their own king. The king likes to actually oftentimes describe himself as a lion, okay? is often used as a lion. Now, before we go further, I know some of the commentaries you ever read, there's a lot of confusion because they're like, why, why is it a lion? Because there's a sense where if you remember like from your history class, in fact, if you Google right now Assyria and lion, you'll see there's a lot of pictures of like these kings killing lions, putting all these arrows on them, or even breaking their jaw. Like king literally holding the jaw, ripping it, all that kind of thing. It is true that king loves to hunt lions to show a hey, we're powerful. That's one way lions are used. But the other way they use is often say, hey, when they talk about invading other countries, they no longer say I'm more powerful than lions. They say I am the lion. Okay. Just for a reference, and again, later on tonight, I'll email out the prayer request, which include the outline uh, documentation, okay? Um, various kings for multiple generations. When Assyria was strong, there was many kings in their line, uh, in their lineage of kings, that would often call themselves a lion. For instance, there's one, um, way as late, uh, as early, or as long ago, as far away as between the period of the 900 BC, which is almost what? Almost 3,000 years ago, there was a king of Assyria named Abdad, so don't you know quote me a pronunciation, okay? Abdad Nirari. He lives from 991, or he reigned from 911 to 891 BC. He called himself, in documented writing that we have, he calls himself a potent lion, okay? That's a big bragging thing to call yourself a lion, true or not. But he's not the only one. There's also Sargon. You probably hear their name Sargon. Sargon II, he reigned from 721 to uh, 715, uh, or oh, no, 70, oh man, I accidentally put a dash, um, 705 or 15 uh, BC, he called himself, this is what he calls himself, he says, quote, a wild lion who is lordly with frightfulness, right? He's saying that when he's invading, he's like, hey, I'm like a wild lion and everyone's afraid of me. I mean, this is really bragging terms, okay? Another one is what? Sennacherib, okay? He's like a lion, he calls himself like a lion, I rampage. Okay, so you guys see this? 
Um, Sennacherib, by the way, we know in Scripture, okay? Remember the one that in, invaded um, and, and God, you know, saved um, Judah uh, by God's grace. Um, and then his army, we saw this previous weeks, right, in our study. So that's what he described himself as, okay? Another one is Eshradan, okay? Ezra Shadon, okay, so I can't pronounce things. You're just going to have to wait till I email out the outline, okay, tonight. But he reigned from 680s to 669 BC. And he says of himself, um, you know these guys, by the way, living as kings, sometimes people think, oh, I wish I was a king. But you guys realize living as a king back then means it's you have to be paranoid because of all that power, you know someone else will want to take it, including your own family members. So when his own brothers tried to rebel against him while he was going on military campaign, he wrote in his uh, record, he said he was like a, became like a terrible, what? He became like when his brothers took over, he says he raged like a lion, okay? And when he described his invasion, he, uh, his invasion, he says, quote, like that of a terrible lion, okay? But you know, of all the kings Assyria has, you guys know from all the written records, you know which one would describe himself as the most, as a lion, more than any other one? Yeah, that's Babylonian. Babylon. Yeah. Babylon. Which, by the way, when I was in Iraq, there was all these, there was all these things Saddam Hussein put Nebuchadnezzar image, but he puts his own face in there with a lion, which is pretty crazy. With you know the Griffith looking thing, but that's another sermon another time. But going back on, um, it was not. It's a guy named Ashurbanipal, okay, which is actually the one that Nahum was alive. This is the height of the empire, okay. Um, he's the one that used it the most. So when Nahum wrote this, this was an image that I think people around the Middle East would have known because they, one of the reasons why they call themselves a lion is and why they also talk about their hunting. So if you visit their palace, they have all these beautiful carvings, or, or maybe not beautiful, but like grotesque drawing, right? That's incredible artwork, but yet it shows them hunting, killing all these lions, and they brag about all the... One of that, I think maybe, you know, not to get too political is, you guys know how Putin... Like, he might be 60 years old, but what does he like to do to show he's manly? He likes to take off his shirt, ride on horseback, right? Wrestle, you know, like, I mean, these guys, you know, they're, they're you know, they go out hunting, you know, like to show that they're, they're tough, right? That they're, they're rough. You know, he goes sometimes once in a while, you know, you know, practice judo, throw guys around, and you're like, you know, just to show that he's tough. Same thing, that's what they're doing also as well with things of hunting, right? I mean, um, and it makes me think of one of those MMA fighters that was from Dagestan, which is one of those former Soviet Republic, like as a little kid, he's wrestling with a bear, right? It's just like, man, that's just craziness, okay? So you get this imagery here that that's what often they would have. And then when they say they're invading, um, why would they say this themselves? Number one, it shows they were trying to say, hey, we're the top dog, right? We're the top predator. But the other reason why it's used is because lions apparently was pretty common uh, in uh, near Nineveh during those time periods. Later on, of course, it'll be gone from extinction, um, and often they would brag about their strength. And the biggest strengthful animals they would know at that time is would have been that of a lion, right? So that's why they would have this. Yet now we're going to see God uses the same imagery. They're bragging rights. They're, God's going to turn it around on the Syrian's own head and say, hey, you're going to be no more also as well, which is kind of ironic. The Syrian king liked to brag that he hunts lions. Look how powerful he is, right? Um, some of the Assyrian kings even have it where he has it where he brings people out for the citizen, and then they were released from the cage, lions, in, in right outside the city gate, and he had to kill 18 of them to show, hey, 
I could guard Nineveh because there's 18 gates and here I am killing them. And the people will watch and they have drawings relief of this where they're looking, audience, they're all like, you know, looking and then he's just like killing them in all kinds of ways, okay? And yet, in light of all this, if a Syrian king uses the same image that they hunt, guess what? God is going to say, hey, we're going to make you know more also as well. So when it asks this rhetorical question, the question verses 11 is asking is, wait, where is Assyria? It's assuming that Assyria would be no more, including the king would be no more. Okay. Um, this news is astounding because according to verses 11, um, it's astounding because there's description about Assyria from verses 11. Uh, I call them the three Ps. Again, I can't help it as a master seminary guy, right? To always do eliminate, uh, uh, alliterations, okay? Um, in verses 11, you see three Ps or three descriptions alliterated as Ps that show why is it astounding the news of Assyria being no more, no longer existent. The first one is we, this news of Assyria's elimination is astounding because of, number one, P, the population of Syria. The population of Assyria. Look at in verses 11. Do you see the word, the young lions? And it says where the lion, lioness, and lions cub, right? Um, the word lion appears in this verse three times. And again, I think this is referring to the king of Assyria, uh, the masculine lion, okay? But then it also describes a lioness, okay? Um, then it also describes, now on top of this, there's two different terms for young lions. There's a lion cub that describes really small ones. And it also says young lion. Think of maybe teenager lion, so to speak. So all these ones, if you look at this, the lion is mentioned in light of all this. I think this refers to different population, different um, people within his tribe that's dependent upon the king. So their size is big. And remember how we, I think uh, a few weeks ago, Mandy even said like, wow, isn't it so interesting how scripture is like, like interrelate? Like we got to read Jonah in light of Nahum. Jonah said, shows God's grace and mercy towards Nineveh. But a hundred years later, Nahum comes around and says, if you don't repent, you will be destroyed, right? So you need those two books to show grace of God, listen, and also the righteous and holiness of God, which is already mentioned in the first eight verses, first seven verses in, in Nahum chapter one. Part of it, you guys remember, Nahum already, Jonah, a hundred years before, has already said, hey, would not God show grace? Because look at the city. There's so many people that didn't even know their left or right hand, which I actually think this refers to babies and young ones. Why would God destroy His grace for the for the young ones, for children? But because of the sake of children Himself, He's going to be gracious. But with no repentance. Now you see the other way around. It's saying if you don't continue to repent, look, He's going to come and He's going to judge. And it's astounding because you would say, wait, the population is so big. How would God be able to eliminate this? This is why the news is astounding when you consider the population with the mention of all these different kinds of lions within the den. The news of a serious uh, elimination is also astounding when you consider second P, which is the peace Assyria once enjoyed. The peace that Assyria once enjoyed. Do you see the end of verse 11? It says, nothing to disturb them. Now, I referenced earlier in previous studies when we went through Nahum. Nahum, uh, when Nahum was written, Nineveh has enjoyed over a hundred years of peace. A hundred years, no enemies have ever came near its doors, which is incredible considering the, geo, um, the geography of the Middle East, where there's not necessarily a lot of mountains, where there's a lot of flat desert terrain where people could come through. There's not like a natural defense. 
right? And it's part of, there's a lot of trade going on from east and west. I, I think it happened way even back then, okay? Um, you know, be, uh, between those west, uh, east of Persia and everything else and, and in those uh, in the ancient Near East and, and beyond, okay? But furthermore, you see that for a hundred years, their army has never lost. So, uh, so to say that there would be no more is astounding when we consider, when it says nothing to disturb them. It shows the second P, why this news is astounding. It's not only because of the population size, but also the peace they've enjoyed. And now are you going to say they're going to be no more? They're going to be wiped out? Like who's going to be able to be militarily strong enough to wipe them out? Especially they're given their track record, okay? If you notice what theme that we're looking even in um, point one is we cannot trust on our own strength or the strength of others, okay? We ultimately need to trust in God. And part of trusting in God is also obeying Him. Um, as a fruit of trusting in Him. There's a third element of why this news of Assyria's elimination is astounding, is we see a third P, which is the property of Assyria. We saw population, peace, and now property. What I mean by this is when we consider how vast the Assyrian Empire was. Look at verse 11. It says, When the dens of the lion, where is the den of the lions and the feeding place? I think the dens of the lion refers to Assyria's homeland. Is where what lions often is peaceful and comfort. They're not expecting to be attacked, right? I think that's the heartland of Assyria, which would include definitely its capital, Nineveh. But when it says feeding place, I think this is when it refers to when it goes out to hunt, when it comes goes out elsewhere to plunge and to pillage and to get its wealth and its food. I think this is referring to its outer far-flung corner of the Assyrian Empire. When you consider how vast of a land area or property in terms of land property, that's astounding to say that one day there'll be no more. Okay? One day that there'll be no more. So this news, as we see in point number one, um, we need to know the elimination of Assyria is astounding news. Okay? I know sometimes we could read the Bible, it's, you know, 2,600 years ago, and we think, okay, yeah, okay, it's Nineveh's destroyed, but we don't see the magnitude of that. If I can give an analogy, and this is a sobering one, don't read anything politically into this. That's like saying the United States, as strong as it is, with its vast navies. I think America has one of the strongest navy, militarily, just looking in terms of um, projection of power, right? When you look at all this, then you consider um, with its big armies, right? Yes, the United States, we have, I know as much as Republicans say, could ours have bigger military? We have a pretty big military. Sometimes I forget that. I remember when I was training with the British Royal Marines and they were making fun of us. They're like, you, you Marines, you US Marines call yourself the few, the proud, the Marines. You guys know that the whole Marine Corps is bigger than the British military. And I was like, wow, okay. So they're like, we're the real uh, few, the proud, and everything else. I was like, oh yeah, it's true. You guys are commandos. I ain't going to mess with you, right? But that, that's all to say, as powerful as it is, we should never think America would necessarily always be there to survive that. Nobody could challenge us, Okay. We need to see the challenge of this passage, the theme of statism, of just relying on a country. And I know today there's a lot of talk about Christian nationalism and everything else, but I think there's also a challenge towards secular nationalism too. The secular uh, statism where people can say we don't need God and His laws, right? That's more prevailing of a problem in our culture today. I mean, just think about how our world is so crazy, man. Our world is so crazy. I don't know if you guys heard on Twitter, um, there was a pastor that... that just tweeted about need to be modest. Has anyone heard anything about it? I think it's he's friends with Jesus. Okay, um, and I know uh, Kiki and I were, 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 and Jesus were talking. He just tweeted this right, 
And man, there was like over 2 million people who have seen this week. And it was like newspaper wrote about him, right? Just of all that. But Christians could go ahead and watch what? The Super Bowl with all its immodesty and not even blink twice. But we'll get all over storm about what people need to address modesty, right? Our world is not so much dominated by Christian nationalism. as It is more secular humanism in our time and age. But then I'm also myself very weary of those that focus all their time and energy as Christians just to focus on a few people that might be Christian nationalists versus, hey, we have a greater culture, right, that, that is ungodly, that needs to be addressed. So we need to see the elimination of this and not trust that even our country will always be there with that. So as application also, we need to see what, um, with this, when God says evil will be destroyed, we need to believe it, okay? We need to believe it. Secondly, as application, God's timing. Sometimes we think, oh no, why is God taking so long? But also think in hindsight, when we look back, we would say, God's timing is just right. And God showed mercy. If I could just give you a human analogy. Um, Osama bin Laden, right? 9-11 happened. And I remember for a while, when I was in my 20s, thinking, man, when are we ever going to get this guy? Maybe we'll never would. But there comes a day, he did see, right? If I could just tell a slight joke, right? Osama bin Laden went to a fortune teller and asked, Hey, what day am I going to die? The fortune teller, totally wicked, was saying, I don't know for sure, but I look in the future, ah, it's a holiday. And he says, oh, but which holiday? And the fortune teller says, oh, I don't know, but whatever day you die, it's going to be a holiday, right? I bring that up to say this point, that people think, then after a while, looking back, it's like, wow, actually, it wasn't a long time to live another extra 10 years, man, and to think about eternity that he's faced. I'm bringing it up to say is this. Sometimes in going through suffering, it seems like it will never end. But also be comforted. And the purpose of Nahum is to be comforted that God will judge sin in His timing. Okay, He will judge sin in His timing. And be comforted. When we look back, we see the timing is right and God is just. Thirdly, as an uh, application, and this is going to be more personal, be very careful of having an attitude that you're too big to fail. Like too big for God to not discipline you, okay? What I mean by that is sometimes we have the mentality, something's too big, and therefore it cannot fail, right? But also sometimes, you know what, I do everything with ministry. I'm a pastor, I'm everything else. But we can never ever think God needs us so badly that He will justify our sins, that it's okay. That's very sobering. That's sobering to say even as a pastor. But we all need to know that. We can never say, God, you need me to be at church and teach little kids. You need me, God, to evangelize. You know what? We need God, not God needs us. God could always use other agents and means. So therefore, we need to remember too, as big as Assyria is or everything else, you know, God used Assyria to discipline, what, uh, Israel, the ten upper tribes. But don't ever think that therefore, oh, because they're within that, that God can never judge them for their own sins. Let's go to point number two. We need to know the oppression of Assyria is fierce. We need to know the oppression of Assyria is fierce. This is based upon verse 12. Could I have Rebecca come up and read for us Nahum chapter 2 verse 12? My reading. The lion tore Nefer's cubs, killed Nefer's lioness, and filled his layers with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Amen. Thank you for reading that. Okay. She see the message from Marmy. Okay. So here we see, um, I think verses 12 is very important also. When we see, when we've been looking at Nahum for a few weeks now, we see a lot of 
death and destruction and um and all these things and devastation we might think oh god is just cruel but i think we must always remember one of the reasons why god is they're now at a point of their violence to the point of they idolize violence right it's a battle that you we've seen earlier they mock god even to king hezekiah saying hey no gods were able to rescue any other kings what makes you think you your god will rescue you from this the might of sennacherib in assyria right Part of this also, why they are judged this, don't forget in light of verses 12, it shows the oppression of Assyria is fierce. We need to know that, okay? Um, here the line, if you notice here, if I, uh, like I said earlier, I think the line here represents the king leading the, the pride, the pack, okay? Notice in verses uh, 12, while I mentioned different kinds of lines within the pack, different ages of lines, even gender, if you notice the one main action is the male lion, Okay? He does all the action. It says the lion tore, okay, in verses 12. It also mentioned kill, okay, killed enough prey for his lioness. Um, does it, any of your version, instead of saying killed, say strangle for the lioness? Okay, Mrs. Burns says that literally in, in the Hebrew, it's, it's to strangle, like to get someone's neck and, and to crush it, right? Um, and then it says filled his lairs with prey. That is, it's giving so many, what, animal? It's like, it's like, man, this is bringing all these animal produce, so to speak. In terms of food, okay? That's all the action of the king as a leader of Assyria, okay? And notice um, what the rest of the lion group or pride does is receive, right? And notice in verse 12 it says, enough, enough for his cubs, okay? Enough prey for his lioness, his dens with torn flesh. So it's not just only they're eating enough. I mean, this is like a, what? This is a buffet of flesh, okay? That even in the dens where they're staying in this homeland of Assyria, they're able to have the all these benefits of all that. Now, next week when we go through um, Nahum 3 or, or next few weeks, I also want to point out they even have something even that God even talks about, even trafficking of enslaving people and all this, okay? So it's not just only those that are dead, that they're bringing dead. They're going to enjoy the fruit of even bringing slave labor also as well, okay? And God's going to be really upset with that as we look at and even taught um, Nineveh with that, okay? So here we see in the Hebrew uh, with these three verbs and four objects, it shows just how much action this lion is able to do. In other words, it shows the fierceness of the lion. It shows the fierceness of the king of Assyria and therefore even the fierceness of Assyria itself. So as we, again, point number two, we've established this from verse 12. That we didn't know the oppression of Assyria is great. Let me remind us too, um, if they're going around everywhere to conquer, and if the um, hunting ground or prey ground is refers to the different um, parts of the empire that they're conquering and oppressing, remember what does mean moving beyond the symbol into something literal history? What it would mean would mean that other people group, including those of Judah and Israel, would have known what it's like to be conquered and to be oppressed or to live in the shadow of that. And this shows how oppressive a serious hunger for empire is, okay? How oppressive for a serious empire is, okay? I don't want to get too political. It's my view. This is my view. I think in America, we have two-party system. If you ask me honestly, two parties could desire empires and, and, and even, a big, um, even a big foreign policy of intervention, Okay, um, I know I say this sometimes because um, I say this because sometimes people 
these days. I remember my mom sometimes saying, oh, Democrats are usually peaceful. But if you look from the history of the 1900s, right, the 1900s, from Woodrow Wilson on, I don't know if uh, most wars were caught by that. I think people just only think of Bush 1 and 2. But most wars since the 1900s on has been caused by this. Again, I'm not trying to make anything political, but I do think Nahum is a book that has political implication. Does that make sense? I'm not trying to be partisan for partisan sake. And I think we see one thing here as application is we need to see that when it comes to oppression um, of all these things, you know, um, man, God doesn't take lightly when people go out there to oppress others. As application, sometimes also, I think even when you look at this, another application is sometimes when we deal with the problem of evil, like, you know how people sometimes, I think the problem of evil, there's different kinds of problem of evil. Um, sometimes people ask the question, why would God eliminate or judge and send people to hell? Why would God re- wipe out the Canaanites? Why would God wipe out all those people when when Israel went into, or the Hebrews went into the promised land? And I think sometimes we, we need to take a step back and actually see the evil for the evil for what it is. I'm convinced sometimes unless we see people truly the sinful of sin only then do we think wow you know what God you are judge I actually think um, I don't have time to go over this but I actually think there's some passage in the Old Testament that says that when we go to heaven we will rejoice in God's judgment it's very hard for me to comprehend this because I think about what about loved ones I want my mom to be safe you guys know that you know I want the assurance of my dad's salvation but I think something about in heaven, maybe we see the sinfulness and wickedness of that. Now, that does not mean right now we're cold, right? Because in Romans 9, the first four verses, Paul, even in talking about election and, and all that, he makes it clear and says what? We need to be broken-hearted people that believe in predestination. We want to see people saved so much, we would rather that we would be cut off in a curse, as what Paul says, right? I bring it up as to say is this. Sometimes when we see evil, only until we see evil do we say, God, you are righteous, to do what it is. Brother Eric and I, a few years ago, way before pandemic, we went overseas by the grace of God to teach trained pastors. One country we went to was a very sad country. A third of the people was killed by the government in just a period of less than 10 years. A third of the... Could you imagine wiping out people? Some of the reasons why they wipe out people is if you have glasses, they say, oh, you must be a capitalist because you read books. Therefore, boom, game over for me and whoever else had glasses, right? And we went to one of this place, which is where they torture people. They call it SR-71, but it's actually a camp. It was actually before, it was a school. It was a school ground. And when we went, when you, they took, any other thing about evil people is for whatever reason, whether it's Hitler, whether it's communists, they keep incredible archives of their record, right? They took so many pictures. You go and you see lines and lines of pictures looking at all the pictures, they've taken pictures of kids that they've killed. And towards the end, when we end, uh, thing we see what? This country is known for all its rows of bones, of skulls. And when we look at the skulls, we remember that those are people. And those skulls have holes, of bullet holes from them. When we looked at that, as a Christian, you see with that, you have, should have a sense of holy righteousness of righteous indignation, of saying, woe is those that could be so fierce, that could kill people, kids. And before we point finger at another country, man, think about our own country. Think about, I think our country have killed more people 
in that country. I know a third is a lot of a population percentage, but the country is not that big. When you count how many people that have been killed in our country that are pre-borns, that number is many times over. And everyone could point their finger and point at that country. But man, we are no more better than that. We as a country I'm talking about. Now, I'm not talking about believers, okay? But let us see in point number two, also see that when God judges, it is God's crying out, okay? Let me say this real quick. Christians are always, are often going to be, I think if there's any area of oppression, if any people that's crazy, you're always going to find three kinds of people. Mercenaries, soldiers who take advantage of people suffering, right? Merchants of death, people selling arms or, or selling things for high cost. Doctors, and what's the other one? Christians, right? Christian, or four people. Christian missionaries and Christian relief workers, right? I know right now we are on WebEx, and I'm glad we are. If I could just share this a little bit too. We know there's a big country in Asia, right? That has things that we prayed for, what Josh prayed for. I'm not going to say all of this because this recording is going to be on Sermon Audio. And I, I kind of want to, you know, be able to go back, right? And, you know, the first time that I ever heard about oppression was never from the government news first. was because there were some of the people that are believers there. was the first one that knew there was oppression. You know why? Because some of those old little grandmas, they're Christians, but their sons might not be at church, but they work as police officers. And guess what? They were no longer working in their local area because they were taken away to go to a far province. And then they're saying, whoa, they're riding back home to their mom. This is horrible what's going on. Some of the people that's even within the missionaries' church that we support were educators, and they're taken away from their area they work at to go to a whole bunch of key people they have. And guess what? Who's the first one that would notice all these things that speaks out? Some of the things they first told me, I was thinking, are you sure that it's so bad they even keep records of knives and everything else? And I was like, this sounds too incredible. An officer in every block until suddenly what? They're the first one to know it and they're the first to say and pray for this. And then years later, you see on Vice documentary exactly when someone, and I was thinking, I cannot believe this is so real. I'm bringing it up to say that we as Christians, we need to see oppression for this and we need to pray. But we need to see when God judges, God judges rightly. Let's go to point number three. We need to know the causation of a serious fall is the Lord. We need to know the causation of a serious fall is the Lord. You see, when we looked at all the previous weeks of our study, we also saw that it's going to be God bringing the Babylonian army to conquer and destroy Nineveh. Yes? But don't forget, it's not... All, yeah, this, the secondary agent is going to be soldiers, the Babylonians, you know, all these other things. But ultimately... The final causation, the final reason why Assyria fell is the Lord. Okay, if I could have Abigail be my motivated reader, come up and read for me verses 13. Verses 13, if you could come up and read. Nahum chapter 2 verse 13. You can read from my version. Lost my place. Okay. Or you can read from New King James. Read yours. Okay. Read your pink Bible. You want to come closer? Nahum what? Uh, two thirteen. Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall be heard no more. Okay, thank you so much for reading this. Okay. Yes. And Miss Burns, she saw your note. <laughs> okay. 
So in verses 13, you see that there's a challenge formula that opens up verse 13, where it says, Behold, I'm against you, declare the Lord of armies, or Lord of hosts in some of your version. This phrase, this saying, is, I think it would have been those, if you're Jewish, if you read the Bible, if you know, read your Old Testament, if you read your Bible, you would know this is a formula. It's almost like the equivalent of like, you know how today when I say, uh, once upon a time, you know right away, oh, it's going to be a fairy tale, right? There's something like that also as well as an idiom where it says, Behold, I am against you. You know it's God's judgment, and it's God's judgment specifically for the nation. Um, you see this formula, for instance, if you go look at other places, like in Jeremiah 50, verse 31. We're not going to go there, but if you're just taking notes for the sake of time. Jeremiah 50, verse 31, use that same formula against the Babylonians, which is like the next empire after the Syrian, right? Jeremiah 51, 25, the same thing. Jeremiah 51, 25, uses the same thing, I'm against you, right? It's against the nation, the Gentiles, okay? And Ezekiel 26, 3, Ezekiel 26, 3, refers to the city of Tyre, T-Y-R-E, which is the Phoenician area, which is now modern-day Lebanon, when God says, I have this against you, okay? So this challenge things refers, why is this significant? I want to make this point is, this is, uh, Nahum is not, Nahum is not saying, okay, yes, you know, like, uh, you know, God says going to judge. So, hey, na hey, all you guys in Judah, go destroy them. No, it's not saying this. It's saying God is the one. And it's not even saying ultimately it's just the Babylonians. But it's God himself that is against Nineveh for their sins, for their oppression, for their pride, for their idolatry, and for their bragging, thinking they're stronger than God. And if you look at this verse, there's four lines. Okay, It switches back and forth between metaphorical statements to literal statements. Okay? Uh, going back and forth in these four lines. If you look here in verses 13, um, it says, I will burn up her chariots in smoke. This is what? Literal. And I actually think this her is referencing to Nineveh. Okay. This, um, there's only one other time in the Old Testament where it talks about chariots and smoke. Okay. That's actually in Joshua 11.6. Joshua 11.6. For the sake of time, I'm not going to turn there. Um, for tonight, but that's where it's describing in the time of um, Joshua of saying, hey, God's going to grant victory. How do you know there's victory? Well, there are chariots up in smoke. Chariots back then, and by the way, Assyria have perfected their um, chariots for hundreds of years. Think of it as almost like a main battle tank. Okay, Think about a main battle tank. Even in today's world, you guys realize there's not a lot of tanks. Okay, The whole Marine Corps, there was one time there was only 50 tanks in the whole Marine Corps. And every time we see a tank, I think I even shared last week, it's like a big deal for us, right? Because most of the time, when we see it, it's like, whoa, it's like the, I don't know, the Mars of War or something like that for us, right? Because there's so few tanks um, with that. Most of the time, Marines are walking infantry. They come in by plane or, or light vehicle, track vehicles. But going back on, it's saying, hey, they're going to be destroyed. Their army is going to be destroyed. That would have been shocking for them, okay? They had an incredible large army. And a professional army at that. It says, it goes on, then the next line says, And a sword will devour your young lions. Where now God is a symbol as a sword. Okay? Okay, I know it says a sword will devour you as a subject. But I think in light of the theme where it says, I am against you, it's God himself that's waging war against the very young. Again, this is a contrast earlier to the book of what? Jonah earlier, where God shows grace. Because even all your young ones, they can't even tell left or right. He's going to be gracious. But in 100 years of unrepentance, 100 years later, where sin now gets even worse, guess what? God says, I will devour your young. It goes on in the third line. Um, I will eliminate your prey from the land. He's saying, 
Um, some versions say I'll eliminate the prey. Some version, I think the better way to say it is they won't be able to have the ability to go hunt for praise is how I take the Hebrew. Um, there's some issue with the consonant, how to interpret that. Or consonant vowels, okay? And then it finally says, and no longer will the voice of your messenger be heard. We saw this messenger, right? Remember how we saw earlier parts where whenever they send messengers, they brag so much how much their king is, how powerful they are, don't trust your gods, all of those things. But God now says, you know what? The day of your messengers will one day be no more because you will not be an empire. Your next generation is wiped out. Now, before we think God is just cruel, when we get to Nahum chapter 3, I actually think God still shows grace. If you pay attention to the wording in the Hebrew, He allows certain people to still escape from the destruction of Nineveh, okay? So, so that today, that's why we still have Assyrians, okay? Although they don't live in Nineveh no more. Nineveh is a ruin, okay? Fulfilling prophecies, okay? So we see in all of this, God's prophecy. Again, this is the Lord. But when we say Lord, you guys realize in English, sometimes Lord could be not clear, right? Because we could also say, like in First Peter, um, Sarah calls Abraham Lord. But does that mean Abraham is Lord? No, it's Lord could also be Sir. Or slaves could call their master Lord. So the question then we ask, that I ask is, who is this Lord? Who is this Lord? And I think most of us will say it is who? It is God, right? But among God, who is this? Which one of the Trinity? Would you be shocked if I already say this is Jesus Christ? I think this is Jesus Christ. Specifically, the one that goes against, this is so much God is against the Syrian, is the reason why, is a cause for a Syrian fall, that I actually think this is actually in reference to Jesus Christ. Why I say this is because Nahum is part of the Minor Prophets, and the Minor Prophets actually connect by theme a lot of other books in, within there. There's same theme and everything else, or there's repeating themes. You can see it kind of, it's almost like a chain link. There's certain parts uh, with that. Turn with me real quick to Micah 5. We all know Micah 5 around Christmas time. What's a famous verse in Micah 5 around Christmas time that we all know? You might not know the whole book of Micah, but we all know this because of Messianic prophecies about where the Messiah will be born at, which is born in the city of where? Bethlehem, right? Micah 5, 2, when we turn there, could I have, um, just so I could catch my breath, could I have, um, could I have, uh, Hannah, could you read Micah 5, 2? Micah 5, 2, I know there's going to be some hard words. Okay, Micah 5, 2. Okay. I want to read what we can see. Micah 5, 2. But you, Bethlehem, Bethlehem, Ephrata, through you, through you are little among the thousands, thousands of Judah. Judah. Yet out of it you shall come forth to me, the one to be, to be, the one to be ruler, ruler in Israel, who's it going? Fourth hath been from of old from, from everlasting. everlasting. Okay, thank you so much. Mommy has a message for you. Grandma has a message. Okay. She saw it, Mrs. Burton. Okay. So reading that, we all know this messianic prophecy, right? This is predicting. By the way, it not only predicts the humanity of Christ, but also the what? Divinity of Christ. Because he's from ancient, he's from old, okay? This is definitely Christ. But if we only read this. We missed the context where if you scroll down with me, 
Or look down with me in verses 6. He suddenly says they will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword. Do you guys remember this theme of sword and what? Uh, Assyria? Yeah, that connects back to what? Nahum chapter 2 verses 12, right? Uh, I mean, a uh, question, verses, uh, uh, verses 13. Remember that? The sword, the Lord is the sword. But then it goes on. The land of Nimrod at his entrance, and he will deliver us from the Assyrians when he attacked our land and when he tramples our territories. You know what's amazing about here? Is this is now saying that uh, there will be people that is going to go rule over them and, and, and conquer. But then they also mention about a singular he. Okay. In, in fact, if you even look further in verses 4 and 5, he will arise. And who is this one? The one that is from where? The one that is from Bethlehem. He will rise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the uh, name of the Lord his God. And they will remain because at that time they will be, he will be great to the ends of the earth. This is talking about Messiah. He's going to be a shepherd. That's why he's called the great shepherd, good shepherd, all of that. And he's going to be the shepherd, not just only of Israel, but of all the lands. right? And then notice in verses 5, this one, talking about Jesus the Messiah, will be our peace when the Assyrian evade our land, when he tramples on our citadels, then we will rise against him. And thus why we title today's message, this is what? The shepherd versus the, shepherd versus the lion, right? But the way he conquered is not just military might and destruction. Part of it is he also goes deeper. How? By changing people's hearts, right? By Christ going, conquering over sin, by dying on the cross. And even today, I know culturally there's a lot of Assyrians that are cultural Christians. Not all of them necessarily. But there are definitely real Christians that are Assyrians. Again, Nineveh's no more. None of them lives in uh, Nineveh because of fulfilled prophecy. But I think this is an incredible thing where God, you see the word of God here that the shepherd versus the lion still shows his grace and is the one that's the ultimate cause behind the secondary cause of the Babylonians. Okay? So let me end here. Um, 